Welcome back, friends, nerds, librarians, and all you elk to episode 30. Dirty 30. This is librarianship podcast. The podcast is the same age as me now. Oh. Sort of. So lucky. Yeah. Uh, so today's episode is fantastic. Uh, mm. We're introducing a whole new segment today. <gasps> new segment. <laughs> we, um, we have our usual mind groups and we talk a bit about uh, some TV, some board games, and some books today. We're kind of all over mm-hmm. the map, which is awesome. Uh, Very and then cool. we're introducing a new segment called The Reroll. The Reroll. <laughs> so this is a segment where uh, we are having, I mean, sometimes it may not always be a past guest coming back on, but uh, we may be kind of uh, rechewing some old some old ideas or content or something. Um, theme that's come up on the show a few times. Maybe we'll look at it in a different way. So today we're revisiting things like... Um, book banning and uh, panic around, you know, freedom to read and that kind of thing. And also kind of revisiting controversies in game culture, which we've talked about a few times. And just revisiting uh, Dungeons and Dragons in general. So we have uh, John Newell back on to uh, talk about the moral panic, sort of the history around it in uh, Dungeons and Dragons in the 1980s. Um, We just wanted to put a quick trigger warning on top of this episode because we are going to be addressing uh, issues around suicide that started the moral panic um, around D&D. We also do mention rape culture briefly and there is some discussion of sort of mental health issues that may have been involved in some of the people who were involved at the time when this the so-called satanic panic was going on so it's a fascinating conversation but if those are uncomfortable topics for you then we just wanted to let you kind of brace yourself or you know maybe make the choice to listen to the first segment of today's mm-hmm. episodes episode and leave the second one yeah i don't think there's anything questionable in that first part so I guess without further ado, uh, let's get this one started. I'm Ali Sullivan, and well, I'm not exactly quaking in my stylish yet affordable boots, but there's definitely something unnatural going on here, and that doesn't usually lead to hugs and puppies. <laughs> and I'm Sam Mills, and did you know that there was a direct correlation between the decline of Spirograph and the rise in gang activity? It sounds like a moral panic to me. So classes are over. School is out. Just about. Kind of. Almost. I still have project <laughs> left. Yeah, I've but. been watching everyone like tweet and Facebook about how they <laughs> finished their master's degrees. And I'm like, oh, well, yeah, I will be in like two weeks. Yeah. Just because I, I mean, did this it's, it's silly good. project. It's because yeah. we're working that we feel like yeah. that. And working is good. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, so what have you been up to with your with your free time there, Sam? Uh, so last weekend, uh, I finished watching How I Met Your Mother, hmm. which I have been sort of an off and on viewer of over the years. Yeah. Sometimes yeah. I like, you know, don't watch it for a couple seasons and then catch up or whatever. And so um, our friend Kat and I, every time we get together the last little while, have been watching like, you know, a chunk of episodes mm-hmm. um, each time, which has actually been a good way to watch this season because uh, it's set over a single weekend. So it, it seems like it's almost uh, sort of... Arrested Development style should have been one giant release. I don't know. It could have been. It could yeah. have been. Yeah. I mean, they, it still worked. And it still worked in part because um, How I Met Your Mother is always great for, like, interesting narrative structures. Mm-hmm. Even if what's going on with the characters isn't particularly interesting, yeah. um, they'll usually, you know, 
tell a story in reverse or from multiple perspectives or or um, you know submit to the fallibility of human memory yeah, those and are my that kind yeah. of thing yeah. Yeah. yeah blah blah right yeah Classic. or or censoring for his kids in certain ways <laughs> yeah, sandwiches sandwiches yeah. Yeah. yeah 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 um i'm i'm a big fan of the uh, ted mosby architect episode yeah <laughs> where yeah. the entire time they're sort of retracing ted's steps throughout an evening and yeah and people are telling them what he was doing and of course it turns it out turns in the out end that Barney, Barney right? was trying to prove that he can make the fact that Ted's an architect sound sexy right mm. and was going around doing all these crazy things so um, yeah I mean it's got great characters I've never been a giant fan of Ted the main character but well, he's not really enough. supposed to be an all around likable person <laughs> he's a little bit of a douche and yeah. you know that's written in yeah, I mean, well, Barney's, I think, objectively worse, but yes. much more charming. But yeah, mm-hmm. somehow more lovable. But uh, but no, I've always been in it for the narrative devices and Jason Siegel, well, who I love. Yeah. Um, and, and Marshall, his character is just like, yeah, talk about lovable, right? Mm-hmm. He's a sitcom character. Um, and Alison Hannigan, right, from Buffy. So, I mean, he's got a lot of things going for it. Um, yeah. yeah. The... S- Seventh season, so last season, mm-hmm. right. was pretty uneven. It was not great. I think yeah, did I we remember. Watch that I think I think I ran through it on Netflix yeah. in one hazy yeah. weekend. Yeah, and it had this sort of subplot where like Bar- Barney, Barney and Robin's, you know, will they, won't they, was coming to an end. Oh yeah, and they had and the really horrible thing with with the with Patrice, Patrice. Yeah, which I, I always felt really offended by. Yeah. I don't know. Um, it's like finally they have a they have a plus size female character and she's made a complete joke. Yeah, of. and the hottest Great. character on the show hates her. Yeah, and the other hottest character on the show dates her, but it's fake and it's to propose to the other shallow yeah, hot character. Like it was just that was whole that whole around, play that was whole arc, yeah. ugh, it was just you know it was just kind of gross. It was it was gross and it made you really not like Barney and Robin, which no. was not a great way to go into season eight, which takes place as I was saying over their wedding weekend. Right? Yeah. Um, nonetheless, I mean, there were some really interesting storytelling devices. There were some really funny cameos. Um, Tim Gunn is a guest yeah. at the wedding. <laughs> and, uh, uh, oh, I'm kicking myself now for forgetting his name, but the guy who Barney's obsessed with who played the the evil kid in the karate kid. Oh yeah. Oh, Barney's nice. convinced that he was actually the, the protagonist. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's actually friends with him now and so he's at the wedding and there's a hole with him and Ted, you know, fighting right, over like who's rivalry. actually the best man and all of this. <laughs> right. Um but the thing that people have been upset about and the reason why I was like, I guess I better go watch this now because mm-hmm. Tumblr was just full of like Anger. anger. Well, not, well my, I mean, my Facebook Tumblr was too. Yeah. Usually pretty full of anger for various reasons. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, and there were like gifts floating across my dash of Barney holding a baby. And I was like, what is happening? <laughs> so, um, I, I liked it. And part of why I liked it was because it didn't feel... You know how, like, even with the best shows with the most sort of reasonable, realistic character arcs on them... When it comes time to do the final episode, I think a lot of writers succumb to the temptation to tie everything up really yeah. nicely and to give everyone their, you know, fairy tale ending or to have them end up with the person that, you know, they were meant right. to end up with, even if it involves a lot of like plot pretzeling. Mm-hmm. Um, and that really didn't happen with this ending. Really? Yeah. Because my impression show? was that they did kind of put a bow on it and have the, well, maybe there's too much ambiguity in that ending. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, guess. there's no saying that. Well, OK, so here here begin the spoilers. So if you're listening and you yeah. haven't actually watched the final episode stop and you care, now. stop now, go watch <laughs> it, come back. <laughs> we'll wait. But um, <laughs> so I think the fact that there is absolutely no guarantee that Ted and Robin live happily ever after right. 
is part of that. It's yeah. very ambiguous. It's mm. sort of he's going to go ask her on a date after not having any romantic attachment to right. her for like 15, 17 years. Yeah. Right? yeah. Longer than that, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I liked that. But more than that, I liked that the whole, and I could see people finding this really disappointing, but the whole final season was over Barney and Robin's wedding weekend. Right. Some of those plots explored the sort of rough patches in their relationship and the ways that they don't work with each other, but it still really felt like a, Oh, and then they're going to live happily ever after. Right. And that'll be the end of the show. Which then gets And that's not what happened. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. They get married. They start traveling around the world for Roman's job. Yeah. Um, things start to get really rough between them and they end up quite amicably divorcing after three years mm-hmm. and really kind of upsetting the rest of the characters. See, I think what bugged me, so I haven't seen it, but I'm, I've spoiled it for myself. Like I'm aware of everything that happens. Is that like the impression seems to be that Ted doesn't actually grow at all. He's still the same like uh like hopeless romantic uh devoted. Yeah. He's all into big like uh uh showy spectacles as a way of like winning someone's love. I mean, am I wrong? This is no, more or less you're how it not wins. wrong at all. So he doesn't mature. Like he um, doesn't I mean there is become... a nice moment in the second to last episode Mm -hmm. where Robin is freaking out um, because of the locket. She can't find this locket that she buried in Central Park when she was a teenager Mm -hmm. and always thought she would dig up and wear on her wedding day. I think I remember that locket. And Ted has the locket for various convoluted reasons. And instead of giving it to Robin, he's got like, it's sort of Ted's final choice, right? And it was very corny. But instead of giving it to Robin, he gives it to Marnie. Oh, okay. And feeds Barney a story to tell Robin about how he found it. Right. So he's really trying. <laughs> so, right. Yeah, to step away from that persona. But I think also the fact that in the end he's still himself and hasn't really like progressed and changed is also kind of realistic. I mean, it's not like he's gone through the kind of superhuman like trials and tribulations right. that we see on say like fantasy or sci-fi shows that will often force people to become really different people like right. mm-hmm. Wesley Wyndham Price one of my favorite characters of all time from the Joss Whedon universe <laughs> had reasons <laughs> yeah. yeah to go as batshit crazy and become as dark and different as he did right and Ted yeah a couple failed relationships I, isn't I, going from, to change for, you that fundamentally true that's I mean that's very true I think what what I read that some people didn't like was the idea that the show was criticizing Ted's kind of immature style of loving mm. in the earlier seasons. And it felt like they then went and affirmed that style or that approach to romantic relationships. But I don't think they affirmed again, it. I think they just showed it I'm, existing. I'm like, sort of talking mm, out yeah. of my ass because yeah, well, I haven't <laughs> seen it. <so. laughs> no, you've obviously been paying critical yeah. attention well, to the I've, show over I've the years. Watched, so. I've watched the show up until the final season. I haven't watched yeah. the final season, but I've read about what happens. That's, yeah. Yeah. I think it's a good point, and I mm-hmm. think it could definitely be um, interpreted that way. But I think the fact that in those final scenes, Ted's kids kind of call bullshit on him right. yeah. was, was a nice moment for the viewer as well. Because so much of this story, I mean, there's been so many comments online about, you know, he's sitting there telling his teenage kids the story of how he met their mother. And really, it's just about him sleeping with a whole crap ton of women in his 20s and 30s, right? And so the fact that the story always comes back around to Robin and has since day one Mm -hmm. um, is something that I think we all expected was just going to be glossed over. And instead, the kids themselves, when he says, and so that's the story of how I met your mother, call bullshit on him and go, no, that's not about you and mom meeting. This is about you trying to ask our permission to go ask Aunt Robin out. Because, okay, another spoiler, 
The mother dies. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When the kids are probably like 10-ish. Mm-hmm. Um, they're pretty close in age, the two of them, I think. Mm-hmm. And, and their whole relationship, her and Ted, is really interesting, too. They're very similar people. They get together really fast and become serious really fast because they're in right. their you know, mid-30s by, mm-hmm. that, by this point. And they're actually together for five or six years before they even get married. They already have a kid. And that is all pretty realistic too. yeah yeah <laughs> right there's a really cute scene in the final episode where he takes her engagement ring back mm-hmm. and says five years is the moratorium on engagements and mm. proposes to her again and says will you marry me on thursday and they just go with their friends to the courthouse and they get married and they move oh, on with okay. their lives and so ted doesn't end up with his you know big sort of bridezilla right. wedding that, mm-hmm. that would i be always very dreamed ted. about since i was a little girl yeah, kind of yeah. wedding yeah. yeah uh and instead he has you know 10 or 12 years with this hmm. woman who is really, really perfect for him and in the end comes back around to a person who he's always loved. I, don't know, I, I liked it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's that said, I'm not like a hardcore How I Met Your Mother fan. Yeah, I so, think it's so the hardcore fans who I have... I had no expectations, in fact, yeah. what I expected was for it to be glossed over. And so... One thing I've heard, and maybe you can confirm this, is that they taped the kids' stuff like back in season three or something. I wouldn't be surprised because, because they the never look, show old Ted in the same frame. Uh, but the kids look the, the same, kids, right? Because the they look pretty much because the they should be much older. They yeah. should be in their early twenties or something right now. I mean, right? They did film those promos with the kids um, about the beginning of season eight. Did you guys see those? Oh, maybe oh, no, I didn't. I don't think uh, so. Where the two of them were sort of. They were talking about the the conceit of the story as if it had actually taken eight years. Right. And so it's these great promotional things with the two kids like freaking out about him getting to the end already because they've been living on this right. couch uh, through puberty uh, and eating like a spider farm that they've been cultivating. Uh, 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 <laughs> that's like the like community The only would do. member of the opposite <laughs> sex they've seen since they hit puberty is each other. And right, like, right. Um, oh and gosh. they didn't look that much that's older. dark, than man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was good. Um it was a good way, again, of acknowledging the audience expectation that, like, this needs to end. Yeah. Right? Uh, so, I mean, overall, I would I, I enjoyed it. And I think that if you go into it with an open mind and with a sort of enjoyment of, like, the strange narrative devices they use, yeah. I think you'll enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's always struck me as being a weird show in the, like, in some ways it's incredibly innovative with narrative devices, but in others it is so reliant on an old style of um, sitcom that is increasingly being kind of outdated. Like, oh, here are five friends, they meet at a bar uh, regularly, and there's a laugh track, and like... A lot One of, of them the is standard. a lot kookier than the others right. and routinely like, and has a opens phrase. the door and comes in and yeah. does something crazy. Like, yeah, yeah. They, ha- they all have little catchphrases and stuff. So like, mm-hmm. it's really reliant on a lot of kind of well-worn, um, almost cliched sitcom tropes, but then yeah. also has these weird, crazy subversive ones. Yeah, I mean, if community didn't exist... Yeah, I think that How I Met Your Mother would be one of the most subversive yeah. sitcoms that we have because yeah. it's relying on the forum and also criticizing it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, but yeah, I would say well worth a watch. <laughs> uh, what about you guys? What have you been up to? Well, um, we played a board game this uh, this past weekend with uh, with some new friends and. Um, it was funny. We got a sort of got an email invitation out of the blue, and the invitation included, "Well, my husband just got this really crazy, elaborate German board game, and he's dying to play it." Run the other way. Oh, do not run the other <laughs> way. I don't know. You might. Uh, I don't know. 
if you would like this one. Probably not. It's um. Well, tell us about it. We'll okay. See. Well, it's uh, it's called Archipelago, and it's one of those kind of um, epic German board games with lots of little tiny wooden pieces and mm-hmm. counters and stuff like that. Um, it's sort of like Settlers of Catan uh, meets a game called Agricola, which is kind of a farming resource gathering game. And then also, I mean, there is sort of a little bit of a narrative element to it, so that might draw you in. But mm-hmm. anyway, so you're, it's, it's got a very specific uh, time frame, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, well, it's, sort of. It, it had yeah. weird dates. I don't remember the exact ones. But it's basically sin- from Columbus's discovery, quote-unquote discovery of the new <laughs> world, yeah. um, till uh, uh, the Haitian Revolution. Yeah. So you're kind of um, playing these, playing as sort of Caribbean explorers slash colonizers. Imperialists. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Colonizing forces. Um, and uh, so you start out and it's, it's kind of fun because you build the map as you go as well. So, um, you know, you, you start out by each player lays down a hex and uh, then you have to, um, you know, kind of build it out as you go. And each turn has a very specific sort of um, structure. And I, I guess it's um, it's one of the games, it's really hard to explain sort of in a short yeah. form because... Did you have to sort of like play through it and learn and then play through it again? Uh, oh, God, well, no. It took four hours <laughs> to play through. Oh, dear Lord. Um, but <laughs> So, no. <laughs> Yeah, um, it, it is hard to explain because there's yeah. so many moving parts to yeah, it. Yeah, because it's like, well, there's so at the, the object to like colonize. The okay, most so colonies. here's the trick: the, the 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 object of the game is partially unknown. So there's a, a public objective which is clear. In our case, it was um, whoever has the most fish. Okay. Um, gets so there's, like, there's like a deck points. of victory cards, right? Yeah. One of them is turned up face up and everyone sees like, oh, we're all competing for most oh, fish. Okay, so that sort of inherently makes it replayable because right. your objective yes, changes. Absolutely. But then each other person has a hidden objective. But Secret that objective is shared amongst all players. So for example, um, the hidden objective might be like control the most uh, towns with access to wood or something like that. Oh, and everyone gets the everyone same one. gets that, or like explore the most places. You get mm-hmm. explorer tokens mm-hmm. for exploring a, a hex. Everyone then shares in those objectives. So a lot of the game is trying to suss out what your opponents or slash competitors. It's semi cooperative. It's not like. Mm-hmm. It's not. It's not totally uh, competitive. Doggy dog. Yeah. But you're trying to figure out what the other people, um, what their objectives are, and then either thwarting those objectives or then being like, I think that person's has an exploration based victory oh, so condition. So not, I can. Not every player will get the same hidden objective. Those will all be different. They'll yeah. all be different, okay. right? So each each player will have a different set of hidden objectives. Mm-hmm. One of the core um, conceits of the game. Well, maybe you want to talk about since it's. Of the rest bit. <laughs> I like this combo my grapes. Yeah, well, yeah. I have one of my own, but I don't want to hog yours. <laughs> um, sorry, what were we? I was th- talking about the unrest. Oh yeah, the... so uh, another kind of uh, function of the game is in order to get resources, you have uh, workers and um, a number of workers. But if you do something like there's a way that you can get, if you need money, you can tax your workers, mm. which will give you money. 
But then there's a token that's the unrest counter, and the unrest oh. counter goes up. So it's kind of like there's a total number of people in your community, in your archipelago, and if the if they get unruly, if the sort of if the uh, if the unrest token overtakes the number of people in your community, there's like a coup and pretty much everybody loses. So Buster Bluth would be excellent at this game. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, he uses yeah. all of his skills. Cartography, 18th yeah. century agricultural. <laughs> oh my God. We're all worried about an uprising. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, but here's the trick. One player may be a like secessionist. So Which one person may secretly to. be trying to incite unrest and ah. wins if the unrest overtakes you. Mm -hmm. And all the, there are other ways the game can end, but those are also part of the secret win condition. Like, right. so you get the secret win condition card, and then the bottom of that card is your secret game ending thing. So if that happens, you end the game and you count up your points. Right. Like so mine like, was it once seven markets get built. And mine was once three resources are completely empty. Right. Then the game ends, okay. sort of thing. So um, this sounds intriguing. I like it is the sort of the human it's, element to it. It's the acknowledgement of like the human mechanics of a situation like that isn't yeah. usually something you see in those games because it's so no. complicated to implement. Which well, is why I don't know yeah. if you'd like it. <laughs> it's like <laughs> it does have that very like very complicated. There's lots of uh, clockwork moving parts that that have to happen in this game. And there it's, are there are two markets: an export market and, and a domestic an market. <laughs> They interact with each other. Like, it's crazy. <laughs> and it was it was so funny because, uh, yeah, she kept being like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry about this. And he was just so excited. Um, but we were like, no, we're game, dude. Yeah, we're board no, game people. Like yeah, you got something out of it. Yeah. So it's a really great game. Uh, I would... Yeah, I would definitely recommend if a, if you're playing it for the first time and no one in the group has played it before, um, then giving yourself ample time to. I would definitely like if you're the one running the game. I would read the rules and try to sort of in advance. Yeah, I would read the rules in so advance. So it has sort of someone who runs it. No, no, but, but it like helps if you have it helps someone. If you, who it always helps doing. if you have yeah. someone playing a really complicated game. Just because it would be so really easy to miss a step. In your yeah. group, who's yeah. the person who can read and synthesize the rules yeah. Yeah. really well? Yeah. yeah. Yes. But um, it was really fun, yeah. And give yourself uh, an ample amount of time, too. Like, mm -hmm. we, yeah, I think at the end it took us about three hours sorry, to get what was it through. called again? Archipelago. Archipelago. Archipelago, okay. Yeah. yeah. So it was, uh, it was really good. It was good for fun, fun game night. It was a great night. time, yeah. And uh, yours relates to Archipelago how, my dear? Uh, well, because it was also about colonialism. Oh, that's right. So yeah, I'm reading a book. Uh, in, I'm about two thirds of the way through. Um, pretty interesting. It's uh, actually on Jason's recommendation, mm -hmm. and also my uncle's, who's a big uh, sci-fi fan. Um, and it's the um, first of the Honor Harrington series, which um, it's called On Basilisk Station. And so they're basically like space opera, but set in a thinly veiled uh, SF analog for the Napoleonic Wars. Huh. Um, and the first book is dedicated to C.S. Forster, so Horatio Hornblower. Okay. And they're mm -hmm. very obviously like, Horatio Hornblower, but in space. <laughs> um, but it's like the best possible version of that concept. Um, the main character is pretty interesting. Honor Harrington's a female main character. The future is extremely egalitarian, even though we have like old institutions like the monarchy still around. Interesting. Yeah, it's well, very I mean, odd. Well, the monarchy in at least some European countries isn't necessarily right. 
gender imbalance. Some that's of the true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and it's a very it's interesting because the bad guys, which is a thinly veiled Napoleonic France plus maybe a little bit of the Soviet Union, mm-hmm. are nominally a democracy. They're the Republic of Haven. So they're supposed to be like, oh, that's the Republic. They're all about, um, you know. They have a president and things like that. But it's so clearly slid into totalitarianism mm. and like autocracy that it's and so hopelessly corrupt that they're portrayed as the complete the totally the bad guys. There's some good parts, there are good people within them, but for the most part they're they're the idea is that they're undergoing a sort of economic collapse due to an extremely poorly managed welfare state. Um, and so, so more like corrupt communists than actual straight out fascists. Yeah, I wouldn't call them fascists, mm. not in the typical sense of the word. Mm. Like I haven't seen, I haven't read all thirteen books or anything, so maybe <laughs> they get more fascist. Wow. But um, and that's just the honor Harrington. There's a whole bunch more set in the universe too, some written <laughs> by other people. But yeah, they don't seem to have the typical attributes of a fascist regime, like. But uh, apart from totalitarianism, Mm -hmm. they strikes me much more as like Napoleon at the end of the French Revolution. Mm. Like this was a a state that began with very high minded ideals that slid into a very ugly form of government. Mm. So the idea is that they're they're basically out of money. Everyone has a basic living stipend and they've been drawing on it and not producing uh, very much like the economy is is ground to a halt, like a really poorly managed welfare state is the best way to. Um, describe it. And Mm -hmm. so the government is casting around for places to invade because they can go seize a bunch of resources. So our protagonists are in um, the star kingdom of Manticore. Awesome. uh, The good guys. Sounds very Jason. Yes. Um, And they are obviously Britain in a lot of ways, but they're not like... You know, usually when you see feudal um, monarchies in space, which are nothing new to science fiction, they're like the Empire or they're like uh, the the um, Empire in Dune. They're sort of mm-hmm. Imperium in Dune. They're like hopelessly corrupt Byzantine, um, very Game of Thrones style, like lots of rulers backstabbing each other. And there's there's a fair bit of that in the Star Kingdom, but they're much more like parliamentary constitutional democracy. Mm. Um, you know, they've got a strong democratic element to them as well they just happen to be ruled by a monarch and they have nobles and things like that Mm. the nobles are basically the people who were first to settle the colony um, in slower than light ships who bought in at a certain level and so they're landowners they're like 20th century or maybe 19th century britain as opposed to like yeah 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 they're like yeah they're they're basically um turn of the 19th century Hmm. uh, britain um and so yeah, Honor Harrington's the main the main character. The the book starts, she's been given her first uh cruiser command. She's had commands before, but this is the first time she's um captained a ship of this size, the Fearless. But she realizes quickly that the ship has been uh gutted of its usual armament by an enterprising higher up who's really enthusiastic about this uh like experimental new weapons technology. And this is one of the sort of <laughs> It's like a strength or a weakness, depending on your tastes. So David Weber, who's the author, goes into extreme detail about his <laughs> completely made-up technologies. <laughs> nice. Like they have some basis in reality, but they're basically made up, and they're a way to um, have Napoleonic-style naval combat, Age of Sail-style naval combat in space, because real uh. space combat would not look anything like 
Yeah. What? At least not the so we So they, they lob like solid objects at each other kind of thing? Sometimes they also have something called a grav lance. But base, what, what I'm, it's less about the specific types of projectiles used as the mm. sorts of actions you see. So you see boarding actions, you see broadsides, you see the sorts of... Um, it's slower than you would expect. Yeah, it's, it's very naval. So it's mm. all about like what side of you is facing the enemy and um, like hyperspace, which is how they move around in faster than light, literally has currents. Like it's obviously huh. the ocean. Okay. Um, it's incredibly... I'm really surprised that that's not a more common interpretation of well, traveling faster than light, actually. It is sometimes. I mean, you, you do see it around, hmm. but it's very literal. Like it's usually a kind of like, oh, space is kind of like the sea. Here, it really is the sea. <laughs> like it's just a thinly veiled way. Hmm. So he's got these really detailed technologies, but Honor has a ship. Its usual missiles have been taken out in favor of this thing called the Gravlance. And um, it's really good, but only if you get into close range. And uh, so they're doing war games. They're practicing these war games. And she uses it once to great effect and uh, quote unquote blows up, like doesn't actually blow up because it's a friendly vessel and they're mm -hmm. all just firing virtual ammo. But um, a super dreadnought class uh, sh uh, ship with her little grav lance. But then everyone gets wise to the tactic and blows her up before she gets close to their ships. And she, yeah. she, she wasn't the one in charge of putting this armament on and she hates it. It's like, <laughs> why did they give me this? But then people are really unhappy with her performance as a result. So she gets posted to this backwater um, colony called uh, Medusa, which I think is meant to be sort of analogous to the Caribbean islands, maybe. Mm -hmm. So there's an, a native indigenous alien population on this planet, but they're like a late Bronze Age type culture, nowhere close to the technology level of either Haven or the Star Kingdom. And they're close to a wormhole junction, which is why uh, the Star Kingdom is there at all. Okay. But a sort of weird colonial tale unfolds where the, um, the Republic of Haven is kind of eyeing this junction and the planet for various strategic slash economic reasons. And there are uh, lots of sort of corporate factions at play involved in smuggling and that kind of thing. And the colony has been really poorly run for a long time. And so Honor comes in and kind of starts to clean it up, but then begins uncovering these conspiracies like someone's been giving the natives some extremely alarming psychoactive substances and also arming them with rifles like this <laughs> because sound good. there's no prime directive here apparently yeah well i mean well, it's, it sounds like there are enough this, corrupt officials that it's it interesting matter. the star kingdom has a kind of version of the prime directive like they the star kingdom has very strict rules about the kind of trade that they that can be conducted with the natives um but those rules mostly apply only to themselves mm. and their colony on the planet and their relationship with the planet is very tenuous. Like they're reluctant to assimilate the native culture in any way or in, even interact with them that much. Right. But then that kind of weakens their claim to the planet in a lot of ways. So these outside factions and traders and people from Haven come in and are kind of like, well, if you're not going to exploit them and trade with them, then we will. And so there's this really tenuous kind of um, this tension between the Star Kingdom, on the one hand, who sort of want to control the planet, but don't want to establish too strong a presence there. Do they start to sort of actively defend it? Yeah, they've got a lot of, well, they basically have a lot of stuff in space. And so a lot of it takes place on spacecraft and the mm -hmm. sort of like a lot of the, the recent action has been about um, conducting 
searches for contraband and things like that on vessels coming out of the planet and mm. stuff like that and that getting honor into big trouble with the various corporate factions that have been quietly exploiting this place um, for yeah. a long time so it's really interesting um, it's you can tell that it was an earlier novel for the author like there are a lot of kind of rookie author mm. things in it there's a lot it, of info dumping well yeah I was just going to say it sounds like he's developing his world to the detriment yeah. of maybe his characters and although is like is she a compelling character would you say yeah or? she is um she's a pretty compelling character she's sometimes very unsure of herself but super capable which is very similar to horatio hornblower mm-hmm. he's always like i've read a couple of the hornblower novels and he's always having these crises of intense doubt but then whenever he's called upon to actually make a decision he performs as admirably as you could possibly ever like he's, he's <laughs> yeah, sort of that's like true. I've, I've read a couple of the hornblowers he's like a, yeah he's almost a mary sue but he's so stricken with self-doubt at all times that he doesn't come off that way Mm -hmm. and he's supposed to be based principally on lord nelson is the idea of that character so imagine like a female lord nelson in space (laughs) is kind of how honor comes off she's she's pretty interesting she has a pet a sentient telempathic cat with six legs that's sort (laughs) of a major character um like is in all these various scenes and you get um, I think the the author must be a cat lover or something because there's a mm-hmm. lot it's like of like a cross between like Crookshanks and the luggage. Yeah, <laughs> he features heavily in all of the fan art for this. Uh, oh, I'm series. sure. Yeah, but yeah, I haven't finished it yet. I'm intrigued to read some of the other ones where, like, I guess a lot of the world building has already been established, so he doesn't mm-hmm. need to go into a lot of detail about you know, this is what the Republic of Haven looks like and here is their political structure and all that kind of thing. Here's how a ship works and Mm -hmm. what the heck an impeller wedge is and all of these different technologies and stuff. as serialized television has gotten more common and has dropped the whole, like, previously on blah, 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 that that books, like series, especially in science fiction, have stopped doing the whole, like, recap section at the beginning. (laughs) Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, these first started being written in 93 Mm. and... I think the main series is done, I think, but um so it'd be interesting to see how much of that yeah, how much of that fades into the background gives you again, yeah, you know it's very different from a lot of s f that I've read where the s it's like got a real idea that it wants to push, like mm-hmm. something like Embassy town or something, like where there's this really interesting central concept or I don't know orcs and Craig or mm-hmm. you know it feels much more like like a Star Trek novel or something like that, but written with c- completely invented. Uh, characters so in it sort of it establishes world. the universe to the point where this can be one story happening in one yeah. corner of it and then right yeah absolutely hmm. yeah but i am enjoying it so far um if only for like the incredible detail that he's poured into it and interestingly um another connection to the previous one he used to be a board game designer huh. and his first novel was actually like a tie-in novel for the board game and he's produced a, <laughs> it was it was a a, a a military science fiction board game mm-hmm. called starfire and he wrote a whole bunch of novels set in that universe as well and some of them did really well they've like been on the new york times bestseller list mm-hmm. um but i think honor harrington is the one he's best best known for well that's that's really good. Yeah. That is yeah. yeah. All right. So then this week we've uh, gotten all caught up with how I met your mother, and Sam is not nearly as angry as some people are. But then again, <laughs> I don't care as much as they do. So yeah. Take it all with a grain of salt. <laughs> and uh, I played crazy uh, colonialist board games, and John is reading uh, Napoleonic 
colonialism in yeah, space. Both of those also sound like they're worth a try. For yeah, sure. for sure. So no negatives for you this week. <laughs> Sorry, all you negative Nellies. too Nellies. sunny out to be negative. It's too sunny out to be negative. Well, let's talk D&D. So this week we are debuting a new segment. New segment time. Uh, which we're going to call the re-roll. Yeah. Like so we've had so many guests on this show that have only gotten through small amounts of what they've wanted to talk about. And so we always say, oh, you should come on and talk about it again. Um, so, well, and then I think the other piece of it too, is that we've had a few sort of recurring themes come up now. Yeah. We had our conversation with Melanie about banned books and freedom to read. And obviously that's a recurring theme through librarianship, but mm -hmm. also something we've talked about a few times. And we also have talked to John previously about D and D yep. and we've talked to a few people, Theo and Mitchell about sort of controversies within gaming culture right? mm -hmm. um, and that's sort of all coming together in part because John is a loyal listener <laughs> <laughs> um, in this new segment so what are we calling it Sam we haven't said that yet I have oh have you <laughs> I'm not paying attention apparently <laughs> I'll say it one more time for posterity this is the re-roll <laughs> uh, and so John you wanted to sort of bring a few of those topics together to talk about moral panics in general and also the satanic panic around D&D &D in general. That's right? right, yeah. And it's sort of a strange thing because um, I, when I brought this topic up, it was a few weeks ago. And since then, um, the internet has been talking about this topic a lot, like unusually so. Huh. Mm -hmm. uh, the BBC just had an article on it. io9 had an article on it. And there's threads about like all the gaming forums I frequent. And it's not like I had anything to do with any of this. Like, yeah. I, I just started, It's and it's not like I just started noticing it. There's been a weird upsurge in discussion around this topic, completely coincident. So there was something in the water. Interesting. Um, but maybe that makes it more topical. Um, yeah, that, that works for us. Yeah, we can send it to io9 and then they'll put us up. Uh... <laughs> hey, right? I love io9. Me too. The only websites on the internet where the comments are interesting yeah. and insightful. Almost always, yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, I really like them. So, okay, so set us up maybe with like the idea of, well, wherever you want to start is fine, but the sure. idea of sort of a moral panic. I think that's probably a good place to start because mm -hmm. if you just launch into it, um, yeah, like people may not know what the idea of a moral panic is. Mm -hmm. um, I did a bit of research on this. I should prep this by saying I'm not a sociologist. Um, I did do some academic research around like as opposed to just Googling moral panic. <laughs> yeah, um, he actually got books out I of did. the library. That's true. For this I, one, I've read all. Our about guests are making five. us look so bad. <laughs> I've read all about moral panics in the 18th century gin craze now and stuff like that. Right. Um, but so, moral panic is an idea that sociologists came up with. Uh, interestingly, at roughly the same time that Dungeons and Dragons emerged as a game. Coincidence? Uh, maybe. <laughs> so there are a number of criteria, and there sociologists are starting to really critique this idea or examine it. Um, from different perspectives. Um, some think it's not even a useful term at all anymore, but other people are, are absolutely working with it, and it has been used a lot. Hmm. There's been a lot of research into it in the last five, six years or so around what moral panics are and how they function and all those sort of things. So classically what a moral panic is, it's got five basic criteria. The first is... Um, creating a group of uh, folk devils. Um, this is the uh, an awareness of this group of people atypical in nature in some way. So the media becomes aware of them in some fashion. You know, it could be uh, 
You know, uh, people who smoke marijuana would be mm -hmm. class. Reefer Madness is a classic example of a mall panic. Could be, you know, communists during the Red Scare. Right. Um, so the Wolverines. <laughs> Wolverines? Yes, the Great Wolverine the Scare. Great Wolverine of panic of, uh, Has no one else yeah. seen Red Dawn? Seriously? <laughs> right. <laughs> oh my God. Right. So the first criteria is awareness of the, so the supposed folk devils. The second is hostility towards them, the mm. othering of them, uh, construing them as deviants or something like that. The third is uh, some kind of consensus. This is probably one of the most problematic. So it doesn't have to be like a nationwide majority of people, but some sort of consensus emerges that um, these people are having a negative impact on the moral fabric of society or their activities or whatever. So that might emerge in sort of the spokespeople of the day, be they news anchors or government right. officials or whatever. Right. And those individuals who are sort of perpetuating uh, the moral panic are known as moral entrepreneurs or sometimes moral campaigners. Those hmm. tend to be the terms employed to discuss them. The Interesting terms yeah. to sort of consider the benefits that those people right. are reaping. Well, I mean, especially with the media, they're often sort of you know, indulging in yellow journalism or they're, you know, trying to sell copies of newspapers or mm -hmm. get viewers or stuff like that. Fear sells really well, right? This mm -hmm. is a pretty classic yeah. uh, conundrum in the media. The fourth, and this is probably the most pivotal, is that a moral panic is disproportionate in some way. So whether or not the, har the, the thing that is being panicked over is actually harmful it's a disproportionate reaction. It's an overreaction to this thing. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the panic, the source of the panic is fictitious. Like it's completely invented hmm. or it's exposed as being illusory. So like the Salem witch trials. The Salem witch trials are a great example um, or um, very similar actually is the satanic ritual abuse um, scandals, which are closely associated but not identical with the D&D uh, &D moral panic. So satanic ritual abuse scandal was all about this idea that there were like caregivers and um, people looking after children who were abusing them in sort of a satanic ritual fashion and various individuals from like um, law enforcement and re religious backgrounds and all sorts of people began accusing um, people in those professions of this like satanic ritualism involving like the molestation, molestation of children. And it what? turned out that nothing was happening. It was completely made up. Like, and it was complicated by the fact that these psychologists were interviewing these children and implanting false memories and things like that, like engaging oh, in yes. extremely shady psychology and moral uh, entrepreneurship. Absolutely. <laughs> so that's one that's been so thoroughly discredited. There's absolutely no evidence that like there really was such a thing as satanic ritual abuse, but sometimes the source of the harm is real. It's just that it's blown way out of proportion. And there's, I'm thinking of things like uh, poisoning Halloween candy or razor blades and apples you know right like the, absolutely yeah. the only the only instances of children getting poisoned by halloween candy has been it happened by that child's family like yeah. they were intentionally poisoning their children <laughs> right so well and, and marijuana i guess is another example of that in that you know it's it's a mildly addictive substance it's something right. that can impair you right you not, can make arguments yeah. that marijuana isn't exactly great for public health or something like that but it's been you know it's a schedule one drug um no yeah. you know like the panic over it is way out of proportion yeah. to any potential harm that it might well pose. and it's funny we're talking about historical examples but really the hostility towards anyone who looks vaguely arabic in the last yeah. decade or two 
is certainly an yeah. example of that. Post 9 11 Islamophobia has often been discussed in terms of moral panic, mm. absolutely. The other one that's been talked about somewhat recently um, is video gaming. People, especially right. mm -hmm. whenever a new Grand Theft Auto game comes out or something, mm -hmm. there's a whole number of people that, um, you know, go, go crazy basically and claim that. You know, we're all going to be murdering prostitutes. The only thing I don't like about Hillary Clinton. <laughs> uh, well, this is the interesting thing is that usually, but not always, but very often moral panics are kind of driven by the right, by mm. conservative segments of society, which makes sense, right? They mm. the, tend to be the people who most value tradition and, you know, supposed standards of what they define as decency and all those sorts of things. They yeah. tend to be the people who are threatened by new and atypical behavior because they're conservatives by nature. But the video gaming one comes very much from the left as yeah. well yeah. as the right. Um, so it's a very unusual kind of uh, moral panic. Mm -hmm. Some people have also been talking, and this one I'm not convinced of at all, but some people also talk about certain types of environmentalism as um, being an elite engineered moral panic. Interesting. But see, I'm less convinced by that one because Because I'm we're not, actually messing up the planet. Well, see, I'm not convinced <laughs> that the panic is just proportionate. If anything, yeah. I think it might be the other way around, but that's a matter for another day. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so the, the, the final kind of um, tenet for moral panic to fit the different criteria is that the a moral panic is usually fairly temporary. Um, it comes into the media, goes under intense scrutiny for a while, and then dies away and everyone forgets about it. And it might flare up again in various forms, but it's basically over and done with after a certain period. So, you know, the gin craze is a classic one or the red scare um, right. or classic or the Salem witch trials. People are, sort of come to their senses right. at a certain point. Yeah, yeah. something happens. Yeah, either the, the moral entrepreneurs are exposed as frauds or it quickly becomes like at a certain point, it becomes obvious that the moral panic can't be genuine because society hasn't been irreparably harmed, you know? Yeah, yeah. it's like, sort of, uh, I mean, you think about like crowd mechanics or something like that, right? Yeah. Sort of the psychology of like controlling a crowd. I mean, often things will take off, they'll ripple through a group of people and become much stronger than they were intended to be, but they do eventually peter out. Right, right that's exactly mm -hmm. the idea. Hmm. So D&D's moral panic more or less lasted from 1979 until the late 80s. You could make an argument that it was still kind of a thing in the early 90s, hmm. but by then... TSR had made a lot of changes to the game to mitigate those claims. Pamphlets were starting to come out that were defending gaming in a lot of ways. And mm -hmm. that was around the time when um, the people stirring up the panic were beginning to be discredited in a lot of uh, instances. And it's interesting that's the space of what, like 15 to 20 years kind of thing? I'd say that the main panic was about... I'd say it was roughly 10 years. It was the 80s, okay. basically. Because mm -hmm. it's sort of it's about the time it takes a person who was playing D&D as a child to sort of come of age and True. become a well-adjusted adult who can yeah. speak in defense of it, right? I was also mm -hmm. thinking about like how well the moral panic on D&D kind of maps to the growth of nerd culture. Like, yeah. you know, in, 19, in the 70s, like nerd culture was sort of just coalescing. You know, you had Star Wars and Lord of the Rings mm -hmm. and D&D were like emergent. And the whole idea of a nerd subculture was just beginning to kind of emerge. And they were very much like on the margins, you know, yeah. atypical. Um, and in the 80s and 90s, it was kind of a maligned culture as well. You know, Definitely in the 80s. In the 90s, I think increasingly you started to see mainstream acceptance. And now we live in like a nerd age where... We have inherited the worth. Yeah, that's right. The earth. <laughs> yeah, but like we've gained mainstream 
kind of yeah, uh, well, prominence. It's, it's, yeah. And that's, I mean, due to the efforts of a lot of these, pe- these people who yeah. were pioneers in these areas, right? And yeah. the success of the tech complaining industry. complaining to Jonathan Schatz, another colleague of ours once, that, um, you know, why couldn't I have grown up at a time when it was cool to be a nerd? And he was like, <laughs> but we made it cool to be nerds. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we suffered so that, you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, that's totally true. <laughs> the nerd pioneers. Yeah. 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 So, okay, so how did this start? Like, was it almost immediate after the release of D&D? No. Or did it take a while for it this It took to... quite a while. So the original Dungeons & Dragons was uh, published in 1974, and it was initially a very small endeavor. The first year, they sold about 1,000 copies. Uh, the second year, they sold, I think, three or 4,000. It was So it was pretty minor. Mm-hmm. It really only heated up in 1979, and there was definitely a kind of, um, like, inciting incident. Um, to that. I should probably say, just to begin, to think about the moral panic, there are sort of two strains to the moral panic in D&D. So there's one which is like the mental health strain. And that's very much like, um, it, well, it's connected to suicide, which is what uh, provokes the moral panic in the first place. It was the suicide of a, a student um, named uh, James Egbert Dallas III, um, which is an amazing name. Um, but he, uh, he was 16 years old, but attending university um, because he had been, he was sort of a prodigy. He was actually really into computers, uh, early computer science. Mm-hmm. And he had a lot of problems um, at home. And um, he was struggling with his sexuality and he had some substance abuse issues. But a lot of this was hushed up at the time. Right. Um, you can point to an external thing. Yeah. It doesn't involve you blaming the family. Right. I mean, the, the story of it is really unusual. So um, he and his friends would play D&D in the steam tunnels beneath uh, the university at Michigan State. So they were like almost kind of LARPing. Proto-LARPing huh. is one nice. way of putting it. Yeah. Um, and so during... Were we doing that in the basement of the library when we started playing D&D? <laughs> uh, <laughs> maybe a little bit. Um so during uh, an episode of self-harm, he went down into the steam tunnels alone and he uh, took an overdose of some barbiturates. And uh, that was actually an unsuccessful uh, suicide attempt. He woke up and he panicked and he fled to a friend's house and basically disappeared. Hmm. So his parents uh, were, you know, obviously really distraught. They hired a private investigator named William Deere, a very interesting individual. And at first I thought that Deere was really the villain of this story. Um, but now I'm kind of less convinced. So he's sort of um, an outlandish detective. He reminds me of Dale Cooper from Twin Peaks, actually. Okay. Like his methods are really strange. And he came up with this list of theories as to why um, James had disappeared. Because at this point, they didn't know that he had attempted um, suicide. They right. thought that possibly he, um, he might have been kidnapped or something like that. And some of his theories... He did rank them in terms of their plausibility, but some of them are just plain crazy. Like, maybe an intelligence agency kidnapped James because of his advanced computer skills and are using them. You know, <laughs> like, just... Well, at least there weren't that many computer nerds in the 1970s, yeah. right. but... Not that many. It's true. Still. So his main theory um, was that he knew that uh, James was struggling with his sexuality and he thought that possibly he might have um, sort of run afoul of people in the, the gay subculture. So homophobia enters the story in a kind of unpleasant way. He thought that he might have been kidnapped by either a gay man or a group of gay men. Um, although, interestingly, he then hired a gay private investigator, and they appear to have had a totally amicable relationship, and he had that private investigator 
uh, ask questions in the local gay community. But what he was worried about was that James might be a hostage of someone, whether it was someone in the gay community or a crazy intelligence agency, <laughs> whatever. But he was worried that if he started implicating who he thought was actually responsible or was most likely responsible for this supposed kidnapping, which is his working theory, that that might harm James, that they might harm him. You know, as in retaliation. Okay. So he fed so to crazy the crazy theories were like a defense against that. Well, yeah, kind of. So the theory he fed to the media, which was a genuine theory, but wasn't the one he rated as most plausible. He found out that James was a Dungeons and Dragons player, and he thought that maybe James had become convinced that he like was his character and had suffered a psychotic break. And or that he was on a special assignment from his dungeon master. <laughs> <laughs> I know, um, but it's of so course, sad. <laughs> if you don't understand it, yeah, you yeah, get wind of it in well, a situation like that. It borders people, on understandable. And people didn't know about D and like D and D wasn't a mainstream thing. A lot of people, this was the first time that even heard of the idea of a role playing game. So hmm. the whole idea was kind of foggy. So this was its first sort of time in the news. Was around a little this bit, story. yeah. This was its first major media exposure. Five mm-hmm. years in, it had been mostly played on college campuses. Certainly wasn't a mainstream uh, thing. Hmm. So William Deere feeds this story to the media. Meanwhile, James um, had had fled. Um, he had worked for a while um, doing some physical labor, but became um, very distraught and eventually actually contacted William Deere. So he contacted the detective. The detective picked him up. Um, so then he told him the truth, like, I um, attempted to myself because of all of these issues that I was struggling with but I really don't want you to talk about this um, with hmm. the media because I mean obviously right. for a lot of reasons he was uncomfortable well and stigmas around homosexuality yeah. and all mental right. illness and all of mm-hmm. that was huge and even, even I'm still a big deal today hmm. um, but even bigger back in the late 70s so for that reason, William Deere kept the D&D story as the main story. So it's almost by accident um, that it became uh, a thing. Unfortunately, uh, James Egbert Dallas, Dallas III, um, he attempted suicide again with a firearm. And, uh, in 1980, he died, which is very tragic. Um, but by this time, it sort of entered into the public um, perception is this dangerous thing. And this is sort of the, the first main strain of the moral panic is the mental illness side. This idea that D&D is dangerous because it leads to obsessiveness and the confusion of fantasy and reality right. and potentially the breakdown of a person like a psychosis. You become convinced that the fantasy world is realer than the real world. That, mm. that was the whole idea. And this was reflected shortly after this incident in 81, two novels were published that were so-called like problem novels. So one was called Hobgoblin and one was called Mazes and Monsters. And Mazes and Monsters actually was turned into a TV movie mm-hmm. and was the first lead role of a very young Tom Hanks. Yep. <laughs> yeah. I think I may have actually seen that. When you say problem novels, you mean like sort of after school special style? That's exactly okay. right. Like like a, a novel built around a theme of like, this is a, a problem in today's society. Teaching a moral you lesson know, about it. Yeah. Okay. You could call them moral panic novels. <laughs> like, um, And both of them basically portrayed role players as these neurotic social outcasts, borderline schizophrenics, whose mental illness was, if anything, either exacerbated or induced by uh, playing Dungeons and Dragons. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of the main 
kind of line of attack, but it gets tangled up pretty quickly with the religious side, which is facilitated, unfortunately, by a second uh, suicide from another uh, young D&D player. Um, and this is when people start trying to draw a lot of connections between um, suicide and D&D um, very strongly. As opposed to between suicide and mental illness and D&D and mental illness. Like, yeah, sort of, you know, or something like, I mean, the thing, yeah, like a lot of people yeah. who play D&D were... You know, um, this was like an outlet, you know, it's an escapist game. It's imaginative. Mm -hmm. It's a way for, of them to interact with their friends. And it's, you know, an intellectual activity. It's an alternative to things like sports and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So I think it probably attracted a lot of people who were maybe awkward or, um, you know, nerdy classically. And those people might, some of them have some issues. Um, and so, but I, you know, most of it is just like, if you take any large population yes some of them are unfortunately yeah. going to commit suicide yeah. so um they probably weren't scanning the cheerleader population right. for suicide, yeah right? right yeah exactly and you know if you did and you found well these cheerleaders committed suicide it would be then a big leap to go well cheerleading clearly causes suicide mm -hmm. like that doesn't make sense mm -hmm. but you know dnd was a new thing um and so and it's it it's a misunderstood a thing yeah that's yeah. right well and it yeah. had elements in it that would presumably be recognized by at least some people in the religious community as dangerous. Right. So looking like some things they didn't really this like. Is, this right. is where the Christian right enters the story with like both guns blazing. So um, a young, a teenager, Irving Poling, uh, committed suicide. And again, he had a lot of other issues, although these were hushed up for a very long time. His mother, Patricia Pulling, was an extremely devout fundamentalist Christian of the like Bible Belt Protestant type. Yeah. Um, she did not know that her son played Dungeons and Dragons, but upon finding his suicide note, also found um, all of his Dungeons and Dragons manuals and started reading them and freaked the heck out. <laughs> um, and became convinced essentially that he'd committed suicide because of a curse placed, a death curse placed on his character in the game. And that by acting this out, he was. You know, this is why he uh, had engaged in this uh, episode of self-harm leading to his death. Um, so she began a one-woman campaign against D&D. It was called Bad, Bothered About Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> um, and claimed the game included. I've got the list here. It's pretty great. And it's kind of funny because she's not totally wrong about some of these things. Mm -hmm. But she's just wrong in drawing the connection that it encourages <laughs> yeah. these things. But yeah. she says it includes demonology, witchcraft, voodoo, murder, rape, blasphemy, suicide, assassination, insanity, sex perversion, homosexuality, prostitution, satanic type rituals, gambling, barbarism, cannibalism, sadism, desecration, demon summoning, necromantics, divination, and other teachings. I um, think we did at least half of those things yeah. Yeah. last Thursday. Well, again, like some of them, it's obvious where she's getting them, like assassination. Well, assassin is a character class in Dungeons yeah. and Dragons, like right. barbarism. Well, yeah, you can play as a barbarian. That doesn't mm -hmm. mean it encourages barbaric behavior in real life. Yeah, mm -hmm. and the demonology aspects are, you know, studying yeah. different species and their... Yeah. yeah, and, you know, necromancy is a spell school. Yes, you yeah. can go raise a zombie in your pretend fantasy game. That doesn't <laughs> mean that you go out and dig up dead people, you know? Yeah. Um, but obviously she thinks this is like luring people away from, you know, Christian morals and ethics and it's all mixed up in real occultism as far as she's concerned. And so she starts publishing a lot of pamphlets. Um, also, advertising herself as an expert witness 
in various legal trials, um, which is just so because kind of she had a son involved with this and had some D and D manuals, right? Wow. Yeah. Well, it culminates in her. She authors a book called The Devil's Web: Who Is Stalking Your Children for Satan? Um, which uh, is I haven't read it. I've, I've read some excerpts. Um, it actually made me laugh out loud a few times. It, she, she's a really sad figure for me because the poor woman, she probably, you know... She needed a way to yeah, understand what happened She's clearly scapegoating D&D as a way of trying to make sense of her son's death. Mm-hmm. But she treats Lovecraft's Necronomicon as if it's a real book that you could read mm-hmm. and then, um, you know, participate in the rituals described therein. Oh, it's like a fictitious text, you know? Yeah. So her research wasn't exactly strong so at that point when she's doing these campaigns yeah. and these pamphlets and writing this book is she starting to point fingers at individual people like the people who created the game or adults in the gaming community or well in general she's attacking uh tsr tactical studies uh rules the the uh, company that published D she sued them unsuccessfully as mm-hmm. well as the school of her son um, for allowing D on school grounds mm-hmm. and a lot of her efforts were based around petitioning uh, various government bodies to either ban or strictly regulate D, but also various school boards and she was pretty successful when it came to school boards a lot yeah. of school boards did but she was never successful uh, legally or with the government they almost never um, and some maybe at a municipal level, at a couple in a couple of small towns, so like school districts, kind of. Thing. Yeah, that's yeah. right. They she had a proud list. Well, it's a rather gruesome list. It was called her trophy list. On the one hand, were uh, various suicides from teenagers that she claimed were linked to Dungeons oh and Dragons, God. all of which were not. Um, and on the other hand, um, school districts that had banned uh, the game subsequently. Hmm. Um, but it does. She does eventually start slinging actual accusations at uh, Gary Gygax and people in the company. Right. And it um, there's a 60 Minutes interview, um, which I found dug up, um, where she's interviewed and Gary Gygax is interviewed. Gary Gygax claims that the people doing 60 Minutes doctored the interview and actually edited it and to make him look bad. I think he actually comes off really well. He defends himself. He's got mm. a lawyer present, so yeah. there's a sort of defensive tone to it. But he, he says, like, show me one clinical study uh, suggesting a real causal link between Dungeons and & Dragons and, and suicide, and then maybe I'll listen to you. But I don't mm-hmm. think this has anything to do with anything. But at this point, she's also recruited a guy called Thomas Radecki, who's a psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. And he starts making some wild claims about, like, oh, I've talked to lots of um, uh, patients and... Uh, some of them have reported D&D either exacerbating or causing their mental illness. This guy was later uh, lost his medical license, um, <laughs> probably for uh, sexual assault. Oh, yeah, God. in the in the 90s. So not a trustworthy figure. Um, but at this point, he was kind of lending her credibility. Mm-hmm. And um, also, there were other people getting involved at this point. So have you guys heard of Jack Chick? No. Of tr- Chick Tracks. He's like a cartoonist. Oh, it sounds familiar, yeah. He he does these like Christian fundamentalist comic strips, mm-hmm. basically. So he uh, published in 1984 a strip called Dark Dungeons, which kind of brings together all the different threads of like the conservative religious uh, concerns and the mental illness concerns. And the comic strip, it's really hard not to like interpret as, as a satire, but it's completely serious. It's about a player called Elfstar, 
who plays as a cleric, and her dungeon master is basically using the game as a an occult training program to recruit would-be witches and warlocks into mm-hmm. her coven. And it's like, well, you've got to the eighth level. Now it's time for the real magic. And then she inducts her into like the occult order. Um, it's and interesting that it's female. Characters. Yeah, is it? So oh, it's yeah. it's a female it's a dungeon, female master dungeon master and, and a, a female character. Ooh. Another female character also commits suicide because she can't distinguish. Um, or I'm not sure if she commits suicide or not, but she's deeply distressed over yeah. the death of her character. And it's like, oh, what, why go on living and stuff like that. But, so in addition to asking for the head of John the Baptist and attracting bears, <laughs> we're also very responsible for the proliferation yeah. of <laughs> devil worship through D&D. Awesome. Yep. Because because so many women play the game. Well, here's the gender is comes into it later, too. Um, she eventually, Elfstar, the central character in the strip, is redeemed when a sort of benevolent... Uh, religious male figure swoops in and tells her like you know you can uh, redeem yourself it's not too late embrace Jesus Christ and the last panel of the uh, comic strip is her ritually burning her Dungeons and Dragons manuals in like the fire of purification and returning to Jesus and rejoicing and and thanking God and this male friend who uh, swayed her from the evil witch it is I mean, it really is like a parody, you know, it feels like a parody, but it's completely dead serious. serious. Um, And uh, Chick Tracks are still around, like they still have a website and they still publish and stuff like that. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. (laughs) So was that was that being mirrored in real life? Like, was she drumming up enough panic among parents and adults that like actual book burnings and things were happening? I don't know about book burnings, although it wouldn't surprise me there's not great documentation on yeah. a lot of this stuff and a lot of the the research i did was hearsay like i've heard tales of like anti dungeons and dragons camps that were started similar to the kind of deconversion camps you see uh, the homophobic deconversion camps right. and stuff like that but i haven't actually come up with any hard evidence that those existed mm-hmm. so it's all based on hearsay but certainly there were a lot of concerned parents um, banning their kids from playing the game, taking away their uh, D&D manuals. There were school schools banning the game. There were uh, attempts to censor it in libraries, attempts to censor it um, in towns. Um, I came across one as late as 1995. There was an attempt to get a library to remove its Dungeons & Dragons manuals in British Columbia, which wow. is kind of nuts. Because hmm. um, well, that, that, that concept of it has has percolated i mean probably even till now oh yeah, yeah. just the idea of if you've only ever heard of D in a vague sense yeah most of the time that's that's in the sense of this this well, kind of history right? i have a little bit of personal experience with this like i can i can say with all honesty that the D moral panic has affected me when i was uh 12 13 i got really into warhammer Forty Thousand, which is like a miniatures uh, game it's mm-hmm. not D, but it's like a science fiction war game basically and it's very much in the same vein it grew out of that kind of D&D type world, you know, Games Workshop, the the company that did it, were very inspired by by TSR. And um, I had a friend, he was a Jehovah's Witness, and his parents were Jehovah's Witnesses. Mm -hmm. But I was uh, at a sleepover and uh, in in a tent in his backyard, and I'd brought with me, because I was super excited and like (laughs) a young nerd, um, my uh, Warhammer uh, catalog. So it had like all the different miniatures in it you could then, Mm -hmm. you know, buy from the the company. (laughs) Save up your 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 penny candy money. and Which is what I did for most of my teens. Um, (laughs) I like... It is, I can attest it is a very impressive collection Hand painted. 
Nice. <laughs> 2,500 points of orcs. Um, I hate to think what the monetary cost is. <laughs> Best not to think about it that way. Yeah. Count it up in hours of enjoyment. Yeah. Yeah. So I had this this catalog, and it, there was a, there's a painting contest called Golden Demon that they hold, and there's like various demonic factions and wizards and warlocks and orcs and all that. It's like a fantasy game, and there's also a, there's a science fiction game and a fantasy game, Warhammer and Warhammer 40,000. Um, but uh, his parents caught wind of this and like kind of seized the catalog from me and flipped through it. Um, didn't say anything, gave me back the catalog, told us to go to sleep. And then the next morning had a very long concerned talk with my mother oh, no. about <laughs> <laughs> like whether I could still be friends with this kid. And, oh, man. Um, you know, talked about like, well, we think this might be a gateway drug for Dungeons and Dragons, which we know is linked to like occult practices oh. and mental illness and all these sorts of things. And my mom countered with like, well, both of my brothers play Dungeons and Dragons and they're now successful lawyers. So, <laughs> um, but <laughs> shout out to Stephen Simon. <laughs> oh, yeah. But eventually the, the compromise was reached that like, OK, you can still be friends so long as you never bring that uh, stuff over to our house again. Wow. And also, if our son goes over to your house, don't show him any of that stuff. Like, leave it in a cupboard. How much of it like did that. you show him? I, I was pretty good about it. I never I never made any attempts to hide it, but I also didn't actively bring it yeah. up in conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, but after that, like I still did see that friend for a year or two, but after that we kind of fell out of touch. Mm-hmm. Um, and well, you you moved and yeah, yeah yeah I moved away a few years after. But even even before that, would kind of like I just didn't feel quite comfortable around his parents after that point. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. I'd kind of pegged them as zealots. Um, <laughs> and I, I think ironically. Not Dungeons and Dragons, but the huge overreaction to that kind of thing was one of the things that made me start to be critical of, like, you know, religion and things like that in my own personal that life. That makes a lot of sense. So, yeah. Well, because, I mean, there's sort of, we're talking about these big issues like suicide and, like, the perception of different communities. And yeah. whatever, but a big thing that happens during these moral panics is that relationships are put in jeopardy, right, yeah, as well. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. At all kinds of levels. Yeah. I, remember I made that joke in our, you know, second episode when you came on to talk about DVD yeah. the first time, but my we dad asking me about whether it had things to do with like devil yeah. worship. He was kind of serious. Like semi-serious. Like he mm-hmm. was just because the only thing he'd ever heard having grown up was in the that 70s, it was linked to was that. Yeah. Was that it was linked to like Satanism. Right? Yeah. And he wasn't. I, he wasn't actively concerned about me. I mean, I was an adult right. by the time I started playing it, but he was curious because right. that's the only thing he'd ever heard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Well, it was a lot of people remember um, Tipper Gore coming out against it, which yeah. is mm-hmm. a very weird like moment. Did she choose that was going to be her history. like her if Al Gore had won the presidency, <laughs> that was going to be her like first lady cause. Was, probably not. She, I, she wasn't, wasn't going to be just say no. It was going to be. Uh, <laughs> Probably not that much, but in 1987, uh, she published this book, Raising PG Kids in an X-Rated Society. And it's generally a kind of like moral panic type general book mm-hmm. that criticizes Satanism in all its forms, but D&D is included. There's a great quote that says, like a cancer, Satanism has come a long way as heavy metal groups capitalized on a growing fascination with the occult. From the exorcist <laughs> to the Dungeons and Dragons fantasy role-playing game, <laughs> Americans chased one occult fad after another. The popular Dungeons and Dragons game has sold 8 million sets. <laughs> the game is based on occultic plots, images, and characters which players quote-unquote become 
as they play the game. Oh, gosh. Um, and the thing that makes me angriest about stuff like that isn't yeah. the sort of the ignorance involved, but the the cherry picking. Yes. And the sort of patriarchal cherry picking. Yeah. For want of a better term, because there are so many instances of like poor treatment of women and minorities and sexual minorities yeah. in media that have all kinds of effects on the way people, especially men, treat their sort of fellow citizens, you know? Yeah. And none of that turns into a moral panic. Right? We don't have a moral panic, panic about, you know, right. rape culture right now. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, but, if, yeah, but that's not I really mean, a moral panic because I think that the, right. the yeah. injustices and the, and the hullabaloo that's being panic. raised is completely be, legitimate. You know, Right, yeah. 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 Well, but these are the sort of things sociologists love to debate. And mm. they well, and particularly they love to debate like, well, what constitutes a disproportionate response and how much of that is shaped by your ideology and all sorts of things like and that. And disproportionate in what way? Because yeah. right now the response to those kinds of things is is too little. <laughs> right? right. So it's still yeah. disproportionate. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So how did the D and D moral panic sort of trail off? Like, because yeah. right. we we talked, we we said that it it's usually got a peak in a valley. Right. So there's a few incidents. First of all, um, TSR at this point, Gary Gygus had had to leave TSR for mostly unrelated reasons to do with the company's finances and his struggles for creative control. TSR was near bankrupt at this point, despite doing incredibly well. They sold eight million sets, as Stipper Gore just told us. Um, <laughs> but it, it's despite doing incredibly well they had diversified way too much they had a dnd cartoon they were doing like dnd beach balls novels needlecraft they were doing they did i want to do um, some dnd needlecraft that they sounds did awesome various board games based on soap operas like they were diversifying in lots of weird ways a lot of them of which like general hospital but in like a days of our lives but board game <laughs> style All i right. guess okay. so you know think like the dexter board game if you have style. a copy <laughs> Please send it to us. <laughs> <laughs> so they, they diversified in a lot of weird ways, most of which Gary Gygax was not okay with, but he'd been kind of shunted off and marginalized. So he had left, and the people put in charge, um, Lorraine Williams and some other uh, individuals, started um, revising the game, partly in an effect to mitigate these claims that... Hmm. Um, that it was leading to the occult and stuff like that. So one of the big things they did, um, and one of the big points that moral entrepreneurs had brought up was how often the word demon and devil appear in D&D manuals. And you could encounter demons and devils and the succubi and all those sorts of things. So what they did, instead of just removing those creatures from the game, they decided to change all of their names. So this is why demons are now known as Tanari and devils as Beatazu. It's all because <laughs> of... Um, and then all the different demons individually they used to be called like type one demon or like bearded devil and those sorts of things and they all got different names now they're just called like that's a hamachula that's a barbazoo they just started making up dr seuss sounding <laughs> names for all of their creatures well and it's funny because some of those names um like beatazi right mm -hmm. almost sound like they're drawn from sort of deep old testament like they devil do names oh they do they which totally you would do. expect christian fundamentalists to pick up on but i'm guessing a lot of them probably haven't read the old testament yeah <laughs> <laughs> well, some, some of them are real demon type names but are more obscure mm. so if you didn't know enough about them you might gloss them over some of them were entirely fabricated um they also removed every last bit of nudity from the game that they could 
Um, so back in the seventies, there are some real tits are so dangerous. Well, those, those early monster manuals, you can tell that they were drawn by like, you know, late teen proto nerds, you know, (laughs) teenage boys, a little little bit of wish fulfillment, perhaps. Absolutely. You know, there's a lot of like curvaceous succubi, um, and stuff like that depicted. Um, so they sanitized the art heavily. They sanitized or quote unquote sanitized. They changed the names for things that might offend the religious. They put out a lot of pamphlets, um, some of them penned by Christians, um, including uh, the Dragonlance authors, um, basically defending the game as like a positive tool and sometimes even as a teaching tool or as like a force for good. Like they'd emphasize that you go and kill demons and orcs and stuff. You're not necessarily in league with those things, you know. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Was there much emphasis on things like, um, like I'm thinking of that Idea Channel video from last year, the sort of cooperative elements and learning elements. Yeah, yeah. it was strongly like this is about teamwork, overcoming evil. Like it's, they they very much emphasize those aspects Mm. of the game. And then in the early Early 90s this was when things started to get discredited so the satanic ritual abuse scandals which had also been concurrent with the D moral panic mm-hmm. were disproved there was like oh psychiatrists are implanting false memories and none of this is real um thomas rudecki that psychiatrist i mentioned was exposed as more or less a fraud um and a grossy gross face yeah um and a lot of the suicides that had been alleged to be caused by Dungeons and Dragons mm-hmm. at this point, people were beginning to dig into them and realize that a lot of the them had nothing to do with Dungeons and Dragons. And so this more or less put the kibosh on, on the moral panic. But I think you can also make the argument that this is just a sociological thing. Like after a certain point, these things run out of steam on their own. That's kind of part of the whole nature of the beast. So it's hard to say exactly what set of factors led to it dwindling, but in by the mid-90s, apart from a few isolated incidents, um, the moral panic had basically ended. Hmm. And, and yeah, I mean, as we were talking about earlier, that's pretty much concurrent with sort of the rise of, of yeah. the mainstreamification of nerd culture in the late yeah, 90s absolutely. and early 2000s, right? Ironically, also D&D was in really bad, uh, really bad condition by then. Um, mm. There's a lot of arguments that the moral panic actually helped D&D economically. Mm. So it exposed Dungeons and Dragons at a huge level. And if you Plus it made it really cool. Made it really cool, countercultural, like, yeah. like the heavy metal music. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, but also I'm sure a lot of people, you know, that hear about it. And a lot of these accounts, like the 60 Minutes piece, for instance, describes the game in a lot of detail and does make some attempt to not completely smear it. They, Like, for example, they advertise it as like, or they describe it as a game uh, favored by imaginative and intellectual children, which is very much true. So like, really what it was getting in the sense of like no publicity is bad publicity is yeah. it was getting news coverage of just what it was. It was getting right? a huge amount of news coverage during the 80s, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and like things like... Um, James uh, Egbert Dallas's disappearance, that was like a national story, even an international story in some mm-hmm. cases. So a lot of people found out about the game um, through that sort of thing. And if you didn't buy into the kind of moral panic, but sounded thought like, oh, that sounds like a cool game, you might <laughs> then go out and buy it. Uh, I'm not sure about the economic, like the intersections between moral panics and economics is i don't know enough about it to speak with them it's an interesting um, thesis project it for is people out there casting <laughs> around yeah um not to but, mention the whole like moral panic literature yeah phenomenon would be oh, very yeah. interesting to look into 
Absolutely. Yeah. Um, but yeah, by the late 90s, um, Lorraine Williams had pretty much run D&D into the ground. They'd come out with some expensive but not profitable side ventures that sort of just sunk the company and it was sold to Wizards of the Coast in the end by 97, I think. Who sort of revitalized it. Right? Yeah, in the early 2000s, they really brought it back into the fore and released a new edition of the game. And they've since made some decisions, like I talked about in the, the first time I came on, that have alienated fans since then. But um, they definitely kept, like, you know, they. there's no question that it wouldn't be around in anything like its current form of popularity if they hadn't brought it back in a big way. And also, interestingly, quietly reintroduced all of the old terms. So they kept the Tanari Beta Zeus stuff as alternate names, sort of to preserve sort them. Sort of like subspecies almost, right? Yeah, they're like yeah. subspecies of fiends and stuff, but you still hear them talking. You can open a monster manual now, and it's there's an entry for demon and devil and stuff like that. And, I mean, there are books now, like The Book of Vile Darkness, which is like way worse than anything Kygax published in the <laughs> 70s. There's like rules for drug addiction and torture and all sorts of things, like for the more mature man. gamer, and there's like a there's a warning label on it, <laughs> oh, which is, is, is funny because that's one of the big things Patricia Pulling wanted to put on, was one of the things she campaigned for was to put a warning label on it. Like, mm. kind of like how we have warning labels for cigarettes and things like that, you know. Or uh, parental advisory for parental advisory. records. I mean, she well, really but I think wanted the parental like, advisory would be an acknowledgement that this is an entertainment object that might mm. be offensive, whereas you're talking about like health risks. Yeah, essentially she yeah. wanted a kind of health risk thing. Um, mm, although, yeah. you know, she, she might have settled for like a parental advisory mm. type thing. Warning anti-Christian content, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> wow. Um, which is more or less what the Book of Vile Darkness has read in its cover. It doesn't actually say that, but it says something like warning explicit and mature content inside. And that's very much true. Um, so, you know, they've come a long way. And um, <laughs> well, it's just it's just a testament to our morally degrading society. I mean, well, we're just getting worse and worse. No one, uh, no one. It's just so ironic that D&D was like pretty vanilla back in the, the 80s. And yeah. everyone made a huge deal over it. Yeah. And now there's like <laughs> things that might be legitimately offensive to some people. But no one actually. <laughs> but there's also a lot of stuff sort of. a lot worse, much more there readily is. accessible. That's now, true. Right? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting, too, that the stuff that has, you know, those warning labels on it is, is about violence more than anything yeah, else, right? Like, that's true. And I mean, it is very clearly marked. Like the mainstream D&D stuff is perfectly innocuous. And I mean, none of the tenets of the moral panic kind of idea, the, the idea that it leads to this psychosis where you become your character so fully that you lose track of fantasy and reality. I mean, none of that's true. And it's also deeply ironic when you think about it because the moral entrepreneurs and the people stirring all this up are absolutely the ones who've lost track of the difference between fantasy and reality. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a really like weird panic just for that reason. Well, thanks so much for coming on again and talking no about this. This is an absolutely I think fascinating I got almost conversation. Almost all the notes. Hey, and kind of everything important. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you, John. Yeah, that You're was welcome. Fascinating to. Yeah. It's a pretty interesting topic. Moral, moral panics are there's so there's a lot of them, and you start to realize that this is like a, a major feature of our society. Um, but I think it's interesting. They might be sort of. We might be moving into a post-moral panic era in some ways. I mean, we do talk about things like. Um, Things like video games as uh, having an element of moral panic, but increasingly the idea of the folk devil, which is central mm -hmm. to the moral panic concept, that's being replaced by much more nebulous sort of 
threats to our society, like, you know, well, like the environment, although, like, again, I would mm -hmm. stress that I don't think that's a moral panic, but... Sure. You know, terrorism, which again, may yeah. or may not be moral panic, but it's very hard to pin down. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, you can still scapegoat certain groups mm. of people based on that uh, kind of thing, but increasingly we're dealing with threats that are much vaguer. Um, they're much more about like the future, like looming threats that we don't know mm -hmm. the implications mm -hmm. of what we're doing with XYZ. I mean, you still mm -hmm. do see classic moral panics, but I think they might be, I don't know, they might be receding. You, there's a lot of stuff in the moral panic literature about how our relationship to media is transforming the way we relate. I was just going to say, like the fact that that one of your sort of five criteria at the beginning was yeah. was consensus, or, yeah. right? And that was probably it was much easier to achieve in a sort of mass yeah. media environment where or you've got this one to many communication yeah. tool. Whereas now you can go online and have a conversation with people all over the world about something you're concerned about right. and learn from them. And yeah, you know, I mean the yeah. like I think a lot of the time if a moral panic doesn't have consensus, but it has the appearance of consensus, like there's a very mm -hmm. vocal group of people yeah. making a really big deal well, about and something. I suppose the tea party is probably a very good example yeah. of yeah. that sort of I mean, I think the, the, tea, well, right? the tea party do have a lot of, or used to anyway, have a lot of support in certain segments of America. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that is a good example. They're like, they're loud and they're unified. Yeah. I mean, the Westboro Baptist church is a great example. Like we were talking yeah. the other day about how they're only like 40 people. They're actually like only that. 40 members of the they're, Westboro Baptist they church. Are but tiny. They pick their events, right? I they mean, do. like mm -hmm. boycotting Heath Ledger's funeral, which is still the weirdest right. move. So they make like, the news and mm -hmm. it lends this, this like, illusion that there's a much bigger panic than there is or that there's a mm -hmm. lot greater consensus than there is but you're right like nowadays you know if the moral panic were to occur nowadays you just see a lot of gamers on gaming forums talking about how ridiculous it is like they would discredit it almost immediately you know yeah, so. yeah it would be really interesting too to think about sort of the growth of nerd culture and the mainstreamification of it being also influenced by the fact that you have this easily connected to community all over the world yeah. right now mm -hmm. through this technology. No, that's many absolutely to many, true. Yeah. You know, many to many is a good way to avoid yeah. erroneous consensus, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, I also think about the whole thing in terms of like our acceptance of fantasy. Like I think about game, like the popularity of Game of Thrones or something yeah. like that. Like we've really moved into an area, an era where imaginative literature and speculative literature, even though there's still some lingering academic stigma around some of them, um, and like in some communities, you know, Harry Potter, there are still conservative Christians who mm -hmm. attack it and Twilight and all that stuff. But by and large, it's like big business and has a huge readership and a huge group of an audience for it. Um, and so, most people are literate or intelligent enough yeah. to understand right. it for what it is as right. a metaphor, as entertainment. Right? right, absolutely. Whereas I think that kind of escapist literature, genre literature, there might have been a greater suspicion to it back in the late mm -hmm. 70s and the early 80s, perhaps. Mm -hmm. The fact that we, sorry, I'm, I'm extending this conversation far beyond our sort of initial point, but um, I was listening to something the other day where people were talking about the fact that we read and write and read and write critically so much more often Way more. now. Than yeah. we did before we were all on computers all day long. Yeah. yeah. And I wonder if that kind of reflective power is also maybe yeah. part of why it's harder to incite moral panic these days. Yeah, you've just mm -hmm. got so many immediate counter opinions flying yeah. every which way that it's maybe harder for a moral panic to get a toehold, you know? But yeah. yeah. Interesting. Well, well definitely. thank you again. Oh, yes, yeah. fantastic. What a cool talk. Yeah, that was fascinating. I mean, I'd yeah. heard bits and pieces about that before, but 
I'm so grateful to John for, for yeah, looking into that and coming to talk about it. Yeah, it was, um, it, was it was like a historical lecture almost. It was really great. Well, and really very relevant to yeah. gaming culture and nerd culture today and just sort of, yeah, our culture in general and the sorts of things we need to make sure we're critical about yeah. when people start to agitate about them. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, well, I hope you guys all enjoyed the new segment, Reroll. Um, it's probably going to mean that we're probably going to have some more return guests on to cover some similar topics. I'm thinking particularly uh, Matthew about zines and Absolutely. Jonathan Kift about board games. Yes, I, mean, I ran into Kifty this morning at the farmer's market. He's <laughs> eager to come back on and get through the rest of his notes. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> and uh, I met his wife's Sarah, who is a lovely lady, and says that she very much enjoyed the podcast, too. <laughs> uh, what do we have for news? I guess uh, we did hit 200 subscribers or uh, followers on Twitter. Yay. So that's always really exciting. So uh, Thank uh, you for following, and we hope that you are enjoying the show yeah. and uh, enjoying our tweets. We're trying to make it, you know, we're, we're trying to step up the Twitter game than just, hey, here's a new episode. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I guess that's uh, that's it for us this week. Yeah. Uh, all that's left is to thank Jonathan Colton, as usual, for the use of our theme song Glasses off the album Artificial Heart. I got an email from Melanie the other day about whether we want a cabin with a window or not. So <laughs> next year's Joko. For next year's Joko cruise. Why would you not want a window? Well, they're cheaper without windows and oh. you spend most of your time outside. Okay. But Fair I enough, guess. I guess. <laughs> well, I guess uh, that's it, everybody. I hope you are all enjoying springtime as much as we are here in Vancouver. And I guess the only thing less to say is we will catch you on the proverbial flip side. I'm a wizard. <laughs> I totally recorded that, and that is going to be the tag. I'm a, I'm a wizard. In my basement, rolling dice.